And let's just uh, start with a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of being here together, um, hearing uh, good teaching from your word and being with people who love you and uh, desire to honor you with their lives. I just pray that uh, you would be our instructor, Lord, in this time. pray that you would apply to our hearts lessons that we can use to serve you and to honor you, and that that would be our motivation. Thank you again for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, many of you, let me just take a quick poll of the group. How many of you are from nursing or community health backgrounds? How many uh, are physicians of one sort or another? Okay. How many are involved now in full-time mission work? Okay. And how many are exploring full-time missions or regular part-time as a future endeavor? Okay. Majority. Good. Uh, I think as many of you know, education has become a dominant theme in medical missions. And many areas of the world, uh, and this has been alluded to in some of the talks we've already heard here in Louisville, that will not allow, uh, King's Pride talked about this Friday night, will not allow uh, missionaries to come, will allow them to come if they perform an educational or teaching function. So it's become a door opener to areas um, that otherwise would be closed to the gospel and to missions influence. Uh, I I was part of a group that recently did a poll of missionaries, and one of the things we found as we looked at the demographics of what medical missionaries are doing worldwide is there's definitely a shift in the direction of educational activity. Um, So I think that's part of the logic for why those planning the conference wanted to include talks like this in the menu of what's available to you. What I want to talk about this morning, I want to start with a little adult learning exercise for us as a group. And we're going to talk about uh, how we learn technical skills and how you might teach a technical skill and hopefully give you a little bit of a framework for approaching that. Um, I'll I'll stop this thing in a minute or or it'll get uh, too repetitive. But what I'd like you to do is form groups of three, uh, if you don't mind. And I'd like one person to be pretend they're a novice who doesn't know how to tie their shoe. I'd like one person to be the instructor, and I'd like one person to be an educational observer who's going to watch the process and provide us a little bit of constructive feedback. And we'll just do this for a couple minutes. So if you'd break up in groups of three, a shoe tire, a a, a learner, an instructor, and a coach. Thank you very much. Okay, I'll pass it around some more. Let's, uh, let's regroup, and what, what I'm going to do is uh, ask those of you that were the observer in each group 
to just comment on a few things you saw about the process. So, who, anybody, anybody who was the observer, what did, what did you observe about the process of teaching the novice how to tie their shoe? Anybody? Go ahead. Okay, so one, one point that was made is the teacher tried to demonstrate and do it in synchrony with or together with the student. Great, great point. That was one learning tool that came out of it. What else did you observe? Yes, Bob. Uh, our instructor uh, tried to explain what you should do first uh, without demonstrating it. Very, explain it first. Very good. So, so in a deliberate way, she tried to give you the sort of the mental model of what you were going to do before trying to engage in the task. Very important. Very important. With a word picture. You, you should be up here teaching. Okay, that's real. That's really good. Okay. What else? Any other observations? Those are great ones. Doing doing it with them, giving them a mental model before you engage in the task. What else? Yes. Oh, my goodness. What a great thing to know. So, and we'll get to this later in the talk, but that's a, that's a key feature, if you've heard the term before, of andragogy, the way adults learn, as opposed to pedagogy, the way kids learn. It's got to be relevant. If it has no relevance, we don't want to learn it. So, great point. Anything else? Oh, excellent. So there may be variable ways of accomplishing the task, and part of the teaching process probably for that group was to sort out which one you were going to use and why. Great point. You guys could give this talk. <laughs> Anything else? Anybody notice that they want to share? Our yes? Our instructor uh, refreshed himself on how to tie the shoe first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is a, and we'll come to this a little later in the talk. There's a very important reason we need to do that if we're going to teach. Great, great point. All right. Well, thank, thanks for engaging in that. By the way, I don't have a handout, but I am happy to share this PowerPoint with anybody that wants it. This passed around a little bit early on before we got started. If you put your email on here, I'll send you the PowerPoint. And uh, I'll, I'll leave it up here at the end, too, but you're welcome to do that. Great. Well, the... This is one summary. Some of you may have seen this before of what happens when we learn a new task. Uh, and if you've ever tried to teach a kid to drive, you've lived through this in ways you probably would prefer to remember. We go from unconscious incompetence, we don't know what we don't know, to conscious incompetence. We become aware of the things we aren't yet able to do. To conscious competence, if we think about it, we can accomplish it. And ultimately, to unconscious competence, we can do it automatically without thinking about it. That's the level of expertise or proficiency. The trouble with being an educator is we've got to become consciously incompetent. If we don't do what you were just talking about, if we don't rehearse again something that's automatic for us and break it down so that we can teach it to somebody else, we will be ineffective as an educator. And again, in line with your principal, they've done studies of this. And if you look at people who have reached automated function at experts, and that's usually who's being asked to teach, somebody who's demonstrated expertise with a skill, about 80% of what they do, they don't think about it anymore. And if you ask them to explain it and they're not already in the mode you were talking about of 
how do I teach this to somebody else and deconstructing the task to make it accessible. About half of what they tell you they do, why they do it, they'll be wrong. So it's really important that we think about that if we're going to teach others skills. I want to do three things in this talk. I want to give you, and for some of you, a lot of this will be review. For some of you, it might be new. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit about learning theory and how it can inform us about how to teach a skill well. Then I want to talk a little bit about simulation as a specific category that we can use in helping someone develop technical skills. You could use it for non-technical skills as well, for team dynamics, for communication skill. But a simulated environment is, is a, something to briefly consider. And then I want to talk a little bit about some of the literature on expertise and virtuoso performance and how we go to the next step when we're trying to help someone build their skills. If we talk about educational theory, um, sometimes this is a boring part of a talk like this. We don't like to talk about theory very much. Um, we want to kind of get down to what do we do, how do we act, how do we, how do we use the knowledge. But theory is important in assisting our comprehension. So the reason I want to go through some of these things is, at least for me, when I first learned some of these concepts, it really helped me sort of mentally get a grid on which I was going to hang different aspects of my teaching. Um, and I like this Yogi Berra quote, in theory there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is. Theory only goes so far. It's typical yogiism. Much of what we do, and many of you have seen this before, in training people in medical skills comes from the work of Copta, which was based on non-medical work by Fitz and Posner. And he basically said that our skill development falls into three phases. And it was interesting, as you shared your comments, you did a great job uh, in your example of painting the cognitive picture before you delved into trying to learn the task, which he would say is excellent learning theory. But basically, the learner has to go through three things. They have to first have a mental construct of what it is they're supposed to do. And he called that the cognitive phase. And you can do that through reading, through listening, through observing. In this day and age, you can pull up a video of almost anything you want to learn on YouTube or somewhere else. And you can see a, a model. It may not be a good model. You may learn the wrong thing if you're not careful about where you get your sources from. But you can get a model. Then you go through a so-called integrative phase where you do a lot of practice. Uh, this would apply to riding a bike. It would apply to driving a car. It applies to medical and surgical skills. And through deliberate practice, you start to be able to accomplish the task initially in kind of a stumbling way. Uh, you have to think about what you're doing. You have to compartmentalize the task if there's multiple elements. I saw some of you doing that as you tried to tie the shoe. You know, here's how you make the first loop. Here's how you loop the thing, the part of the string you're going to wrap around. Um, but it, it doesn't start out being very fluid, but it becomes more fluid as you engage in deliberate practice. And then ultimately it becomes automatic so that you can accomplish the task without even thinking about it. You've all had this experience with driving home from work. Um, you, there are days, I bet, you end up in your garage and you really don't remember thinking about one thing you did. It's become automated for you. Um, so that's, that's the end point. Now, a couple things to learn about observation and building the cognitive model. Um, the more complex the task you're trying to teach, the more time you ought to spend on this. So your model, 
if you're truly dealing with a novice, it was the right thing to do to spend some time on this. And the more complex the task, the more time the learner's going to need. And you do want to be a little bit careful about giving them too much diversity as they build the mental model early because they'll get confused by it. The novice gets confused. If you show them five videos and say, now, what's your model? They won't know which part of each video to cue on, to take, and to build their model out of. So start simply and then build in other models that they can adapt as they get their own framework conceptually down. Um, And the other thing to remember is that there will be a reinforcement that goes on as they start to practice that will allow them uh, to benefit more from each observation. And I learned this as a surgery resident when I was trying to learn new tasks. If I was failing at something, one of the best things for me to do was to stop pushing my attending to let me do it and to watch him or her do it because now I was cued in to what I wasn't doing well, and I'd watch how they did it, and then I could learn better. So uh, it, become, it becomes an important part of their cognitive learning to stumble a little bit in the integrative phase and realize then what they need to add to their model. Um, the other thing that I think is really important for this particular generation that's coming up now, I watch my kids, and they're so intuitive at the use of visual cues to do psychomotor tasks. And they'll sit down with me and they'll be playing Nintendo or something. And I can't get it. I truly can't get it. I I quit because I don't like to lose, which is one of the things God's working on in my heart. But but my kids are, they'll pick up a new one they've never seen before, a new game, a new control piece. And they've got it down in a matter of seconds. So one thing I think we need to be careful of is there's a tendency to throw the baby out with the bathwater as you get this technology and say, well, you're good with this here, just figure it out. But what they found is that if the instructor will cue the learner on what's important in the virtual environment or the video environment they're doing, they can uh, grow in their skill development much more quickly. So there's still a role for the instructor. We can't rely totally on technology, and I'll come back to that a little bit more. Um, This was a couple studies that one of my colleagues at the institution I'm at now did, uh, looking at novice learners in a medical setting. And because of the generational issue and how good they were with using uh, video screens to learn, he he wanted to explore whether there was still a role for the instructor. And just to summarize his work, if there was feedback along with a computer or video-assisted piece where an instructor actually guided them through the process and told them what was most important to see in it, uh, the learning outcome was superior. So again, we, we don't want to forget the role of the teacher, and when we, even when we have more sophisticated tools to teach than many of us grew up with. Um, th- some of you have explored memory theory, I'm sure, as you've tried to learn languages or do other things. Uh, one of the common um, Modern network theories involves what's called semantic network memory theory. And I just bring this up to say that when we're learning tasks, the context is important, and it becomes part of our memory bank for recalling the task and applying it in a setting. So one of the things you can do as you structure the practice part of learning a new skill is to have the learner do it in a setting that in some way mimics the setting, the environment in which they'll exercise the skill, and that will help them in recall to pull it out and use it appropriately. Um, uh, And the other thing that is critical for adult learners in this area is if you can attach someone, uh, I think it was 
You know, she's falling asleep. But she, that's okay. She said earlier that you talked about why it was important in the first place. And for adult learners, this is really key. What the memory and the ability to pull it out of memory and use it relates to the significance of the task. We, we have those things higher up in these networks in our brain, if you want to use that model for how we recall things, if they have relevance and significance to us. So if you can build that into the learning model, it will help your learner pull the skill out and use it. I wanted to also cover one other theory, theory model, and then we'll move on from the theory part of the talk. Um, and I like this one because I think it tells you how to involve the learner in an active way in the process of acquiring the new skill and how the learner and the teacher can each take on specific roles and what those roles might be. It gives you a structure uh, by which you might teach the new skill. It's called the cognitive apprenticeship model. And in it, the expert or the teacher models the task. And, and again, some of you brought this up in our little exercise that you showed them how to do it before you asked them to do it. Coaching, that's giving them active instruction when they're trying to learn the task and doing their first practice repetitions. And then the principle of scaffolding, and any of you who have been through medical training understand this well because it's how all all our residencies work. But the idea is just like a structure being built uh, needs a lot of support as it starts, but as it comes to its finishing phase, the scaffolding comes down. The external structure is removed. Learning needs to happen the same way. If you don't remove scaffolding as the structure matures, the same kind of outcome isn't achieved. And the learner can actually fail to learn things they need to do to really polish off the task because you're providing too much external support. Conversely, if you throw them in the deep end of the pool before they're ready to swim, you can get some bad learning outcomes or worse as well. So those are the things the teacher or the expert can provide. The learner in this model has several things they're responsible to do too. One is articulating, which is a way of describing in their own language what they're learning and how they're processing it into a mental model that they're going to use in the future. Reflecting means taking the task as they learn it and comparing it to others as they see them doing it and asking themselves, what can I learn from others? What are they doing better than me? Um, and then exploring is, is trying to take the task into new settings so that you can use it in novel, novel settings and transfer the skill, if you will, from the one you learned it in to others where it might be appropriately used. So to just go into these in a little more detail, um, for the expert we talked about uh, already about the principle of modeling. Um, the, the key thing for the expert here is to reveal or make transparent their thought process about the task so that the learner can use that in building their mental model. So you don't just say, okay, here's what you're going to need to do, but you, you give it relevance, you give it significance, and you talk a little bit about how you've been able to use it, and you start to give them this, this broader base on which their learning can hang. Um, and then the, the use of uh, feedback. Um, we've done studies on medical residents, and next to the competence of their instructor, instructor uh, is the instructor somebody they respect doing the skill or the task? The thing that matters most to them is do they get feedback? And is it constructive feedback? Not praise, hey, way to go, good job. And not, boy, you could do that better, meaningless criticism, but constructive criticism. Um, and you've all heard this before, I'm sure, but they talk about the feedback sandwich is a good model with which to do that. Here's what you did well. 
Here's what you didn't do so well or what you did poorly. And here's how I would address that next time you try to accomplish the task. Great way to give constructive feedback. Uh, And then we talked about scaffolding already, but basically the instructor has to consciously give them more independence as their experience and capability grow. One of the key things that I found, especially teaching surgical skills, which is my field, is what do you happen when you have to take things over from the learner? So you're in the middle of the case, and all of a sudden it's clear that they don't know what to do next. I had this happen last week. I was operating with a chief resident. They got into bleeding on a gallbladder case, uh, and they didn't know what to do. And so I took their hand and quickly did it, and then I stepped back and said, okay, now here's why we did that, and here's why that was the right thing to do and how you would then do something else if that didn't work. Uh, And we used it as a learning opportunity. But basically the key thing is it becomes a very teachable moment for the learner when they stumble. So take advantage of it. Don't, when you take it over, don't lose the opportunity to make an educational impact. Secondly, uh, your verbalization as the teacher will be key to what they take out of it. They obviously didn't know how to do it already or they wouldn't have stumbled. So, for example, uh, it's one thing to say, here, let me show you how to do that, and then do it, and they saw that you did it well, but they don't know how you did something they didn't already know to do. But if you say, notice that I held the clamp this way, and I rotated my wrist instead of pushing like you did, and that was the thing that allowed me to get around the blood vessel or whatever it was, you verbalize exactly what you do. And again, this takes work on the teacher's part. You can't just be in, in expert function mode. You have to deconstruct the task, as we've already talked about. Another model that I found very helpful for doing this, uh, my, one of my mentors calls it the BID model, but basically says before you do the task, uh, spend a little time briefing with the learner. So let's say you're, again, to use my, my own uh, field as an example, you're going into the operating room and you're doing uh, a procedure and you know the resident or the learner has done it before. You say as you're at the scrub sink or whatever, hey, tell me a little bit about this procedure. How many have you done? What's your experience with it? And what are you still struggling with in doing this? Is there any part of the procedure that you really know you've got to learn yet? Are there parts you know you can do smoothly? You get an idea real quickly what you want to focus on. Then during the procedure, you focus on that. You make your learning focus that particular part, what they've identified. And at the end, you do a debriefing in proximate or immediate fashion, not three days later. Hey, you remember that case we did? I wanted to tell you. But right away afterwards, before you leave the room, ideally, you say, hey, you know what? Here's what I saw you do today that I think is progress for you. Way to go. Here's what I'd do next time to maybe even be a little more smooth, and then we can move on. Uh, that's, that's a good model to help you accomplish those basic tasks. Uh, I've already talked about this briefly, and I won't belabor it, but basically the learner has some very active roles in this model, and I think encouraging the learner to do these things, um, to be able to articulate where they're at in their learning process, get them to verbalize it, get them to talk about it. Again, the goal being to help them develop their concept of the task uh, and help them compare to other models. Video is a wonderful tool, again, in this area because they feel they've got some expertise down. You can say, hey, here's a really good video that I found on this procedure or this task. Take it and run with it and compare it to what you're doing and come back to me and tell me what things you see them doing that you're not doing yet, how we might adapt that into into your development. 
All right, enough on theory. Any comments anybody wants to make about learning theory? I just wanted to give you that because for me, a light bulb went on when I first heard some of these things. I realized why some of the things I'd encountered in my own education had become dysfunctions for me and why I could do a better job if I thought through some of these things. Yes, go ahead. Um, so I'm a surgery resident as well, so this is like my daily life. It's where you live. And I asked one of my attendings the other day, I was like, hey, can you tell me what goes through your head while you're doing this for certain part? And he's like, you just do it. And so, like, because he's at that unconscious competence. Right. How do you get your attendings or the person who you're trying to learn from to, take, to realize that they need to take a step back? Right. Um, that's a complicated question because there's, there's a social dynamic there, too. And what I've learned from missionaries is this social dynamic is even harder in the context in which they work because there's often paternalistic and other elements of the culture they have to be very careful of. Some of them will try to go in with all these teaching ideas into a cross-cultural setting and find that nobody will respond when they throw out questions because there's such a respect for the professor figure and people don't want to ask questions they feel like they're challenging. So you, you probably don't deal with it to the extent they do, but you do deal with some of that in the context you're bringing up this problem in. Um, what, I've, what I would recommend you do is um, next time you do that task, Pin the attending down ahead of time. Your attending obviously hasn't heard this talk and, and or hasn't thought maybe about these things and how he can be or she can be a better instructor. And these were things I learned the hard way by making similar comments to what your attending did. But I think if you say to them at the start, I have trouble doing this part of the task. I can see that you do it fluently. Would you do it today? I'm not even going to ask you to let me do it. But would you please talk out loud? while you're doing it, about exactly what you're doing. And then what I would also do is I would make mental notes in your mind, how they hold their hands, what instrument they use, what pace they do things at. People have done studies on judgment, for example, and they found that people are identified as having superior judgment and technical skill in surgery specifically uh, by their colleagues. If you break down what they do differently than everybody else, they know when to slow down in a procedure. That's their main that's the main translatable feature of judgment is they know when to slow down instead of rush into a situation where harm is quickly at hand. So uh, watch when they slow down, watch the pace of their movements, make your own little mental notes, and then ask them to debrief with you afterwards and just say, I noticed that you did this. Uh, can you talk to me about that? And you may be able to draw out of them. And I, one time when I was a resident I saw an attending who was a great teacher but had become discouraged by all the pressures of modern medicine. I saw him reborn almost as a teacher when some residents did this with him. They started going to him and asking him to help because they knew he had skills. And it, it was a transforming event for him late in his career. So I think you can play an active role. Well, it's a great, great question. Sometimes that's, you know, I want to, you know, do a good dictation. How would you dictate exactly what you just did? Sometimes them having to describe it in a dictation sense, you get an idea exactly what they're doing. So just do it. 
It's a wonderful idea. Because that's their structured way of verbalizing, even if they're not used to telling you how they do it. Another way you could do that is to say, would you mind if I listen to you while you do your dictation on this case? Yep. Great, great thought. I'd like to add, too, um, 20 years in the OR, with students precepting, you know, new hires coming in, asking that surgeon, you know, we got this new uh, nurse team member or tech, can you tell them, you know, go through your, your procedure, what you're doing, why you're doing it, how they can best assist you at the field when they're scrubbed in or when they're circulating? What is the, you know, the crucial and critical point of the case and what they need to? And I had an Earl Nunn um, uh, doctor resident say, that's great. You know, and I recognized that early enough in my 20 years that this is something that I incorporate. We're multidisciplinary team anesthesia. Find out who that surgeon, you know, who they trust, what nurse, what tech, what anesthesiologist, and say, you know what, what is, how does he do this? And get them on their side, too. And it's helped. You know, cause it's such a, you know, beautiful environment that we work in in the OR. And that trust is needed. Those are wonderful points, and I would have to say that some of the best teachers I have had in skill development have been the OR nurses and technical support staff. Um, they've made me a better surgeon and a better teacher through when they're active like that. So that's right. That's right. And The other thing that's key about your comment is I think that is, for us that function in operating room or medical team environments, that is one of the greatest ways to have a Christian witness with our colleagues is what, what team dynamics do we facilitate and promote. And if we show that service is a big part of why we're there, we're engaging with the team and how do we teach well the learner, uh, we keep our focus on respectful care of the patient, um, we show respect to our colleagues. If conflict comes up, we know how to manage it in a way that doesn't personalize the conflict and damage relationships. That's huge, and it's very countercultural for what many of us have grown up in. Um, and the, you, you guys know this is getting off the topic, but it's probably worth bringing up with your, the point you're making, which is a very important one. There's now literature um, started in pediatric cardiac surgery, but now it's spilled over into many areas of surgery. Um, that shows that patient outcomes are linked to these team dynamics. Not just does everybody leave the room feeling happy and do you retain the nurse or the doctor in the job two years later. The patient's outcome is impacted by these things. So I've started to use that with my hospital when we get into problems with physician discipline. Um, we'll, we'll take the focus off your bad behavior and we'll say, you know what, we got a patient care issue. And everybody rallies around that. Now, how can we make sure our patient care outcomes are better? It'll involve better team dynamics. Here's how you can be better at your team dynamic skill. So it's a really good point. Thank you. Yes? Sorry, will you address um, these teaching techniques cross-culturally at, at later? Or is this... I wish I had the skill to do that well. The, um, I've learned from missionaries, and others of you may want to comment on her question because it's a really important one. Um, the, the biggest challenge I've heard back from them is when they're functioning in a culture that has extremely high respect for elder figures or senior figures, um, it's hard for them to promote sort of the open um, give-and-take environment that these theories would lend themselves to. 
and they've talked about saying to their learners, uh, you know, will you uh, give me your thoughts about this, or how would you critique what I just did, and nobody will say anything because of fear that they'll be violating uh, a respect that that they want to honor. Dave Thompson, I don't know if any of you have heard him or talked to him, Dave's been educating residents in Gabon for 15 years now. And some of the African cultures, this is definitely an element. He'd be a great person to ask that question to. I think, I think what they would say is they try to work within the context they are and look for safe ways um, to build confidence. And with time, the residents have come out of some of those molds and started to, to interact with them in ways that lend themselves to these theories. I think the other thing I always think about when I think about those questions, and again, I don't feel like I have the answers and haven't myself spent enough time in those contexts uh, to have the insight, but it seems to me biblically that um, the gospel um, had a great way of adapting to elements of people's cultures and showing respect for them, and it was one of the enduring features of the gospel, not evil features, not features that were destructive or harmful but features that were part of a culture showing respect for that and honor for that as a way of showing compassion and love um, and humility. Maybe that's the the thing that it's best illustrated. Um, I've heard many stories from missionaries where their sensitivity to those issues instead of, hey, I've got a bunch of new answers, listen to me, was really how they gained credibility uh, with the people they were working with. So, Bob, you've been overseas a lot. You know, we are so free to give away our knowledge. And in many cultures in Africa, uh, if you know something that somebody else doesn't know, that's your one way of getting ahead because unemployment is such a huge deal. So if you know something that somebody else doesn't know, you guard that with everything you have and don't disperse it. And, and uh, you know, we in our culture, we, we love to teach people and train them. But uh, uh, we've, we've had this happen over and over. So to get your residents to be willing to share with the guys down the line perhaps might be an issue. Uh, and and yeah, I think you just have to model that. I think the other thing is when you have a, a bad outcome, uh, we, we are still struggling with this big time in Africa and Togo. Uh, how do you approach somebody uh, to encourage them and, and help them get through something that had a bad outcome? Because uh, to write up an incident report is just like shooting them in the head. They just take it so badly. And we're really struggling trying to figure out how do you gently <laughs> say we need to change this without making them feel just totally annihilated. One of the things I've found, in, and not in a cross-cultural setting, but I'm a program director, and I run our M&M conference. One of the most important disciplines for me when I have a complication or a death is to be very transparent about it. Because if I don't model that, how can I expect my faculty to model it or my residents to model it? So sometimes I think your point about modeling is the most important thing to do. And over time, change can be facilitated as you model a behavior and people get to know why you do it that way and respect for it. It's a it's really good, really good question, really good comment. Um, we're going to run out of time in 10 minutes, and I want to allow plenty of time for this interaction. Do you mind if I race through some slides and just highlight a couple things I think will be of most relevance to this audience? I talked about simulation. I just used an example of golf. Uh, because it's an example where I need a lot of help from simulation and can't seem to make much progress. But my point was that it's a cost, not trying to learn in a high-performance setting, like planning me on Augusta National and telling me to learn how to play golf, would be costly. I would not achieve my learning goals because of the performance pressure. I would harm other people if they were on the course. Um, 
with my errant shots, and it, it just would be a bad way to learn. And we can't afford those costs in this era. So the, the, the point I wanted to make is that simulation gives us a way to do adult learning in a low-cost, safe environment way, which lends itself to adult learning principles. I won't go into that in more detail. We've talked a little bit about this earlier, but adult learners, a safe learning environment is key. When you put adult learners in a threatening learning environment, they tend to not learn as well. The process becomes inefficient. Many of us have learned some of our most important lessons in surgery training that, I mean, a safe, when, people, when I first started here about a safe learning environment, I thought, where were the people that would have taught me this or taught my teachers this when I was a resident. They didn't know about this principle. And so, it, it, but it really does impact what our learners take away. Simulation lends itself to that. This is the slide in this section I really wanted to emphasize. Is simulation doesn't have to be expensive. And the, the study that I reference on here um, looked at, when we talk about fidelity in a simulation, we talk about how much it looks like the real thing. So we've got Simulators in the U.S. now, many of you may have worked on them, that cost six-figure money to teach you anesthesia skills, for example. And there are some really valuable things that can be learned from those. But with a novice learner, fidelity is confusing. Um, and they, they don't know what to pay attention to again and what not. And simplifying it, breaking it down, can actually help them learn better. And this study I quote was at University of Toronto. They have a state-of-the-art simulation and learning center. It's fantastic. But one of their urologists was down in the McDonald's one day and thought, you know, I think instead of that $10,000 nicely molded plastic model of how to do a ureteroscopic stone extraction that we have up in the lab, I think I could make one out of this stuff I got right here. And he took two straws, a styrofoam cup. He got a Penrose drain that he had up in the lab. And he designed a urethra, a bladder, and two ureters. He wadded up the paper from one of the straws and put it in the straw, and that was his stone. And then they did a study where they trained people on that model versus their fancy simulator. And you know for novice learners, the McDonald's model was just as good at teaching them the basic skills of ureteroscopic stone extraction. And our skills, we have a very well-developed skills lab at the facility I'm at now. The, the best feature of the lab is a nurse educator who spends a lot of her time at Hobby Lobby. And she'll go to a meetings and see an expensive simulator. She'll go to Hobby Lobby, buy some Velcro, buy some red and blue tubing, and she'll come up with this model that has blood vessels and stuff, adhesions to take down, and it's phenomenal. And she does it for 10 bucks. So I think for people working in mission settings, to learn some of that and how you could use that for skill development would be a very valuable task. Um, I won't go through these. These are just some studies that show that practice in that kind of environment translates into improved patient care, not just improved learning. Um, lastly, I wanted to talk for just a minute on expertise and its development. You guys have heard a lot of this is the work of Anders Ericsson. He's a psychologist. He's been publishing on this for 15, 20 years now. And he found that across disciplines, uh, Expert function was a, was a matter of um, dis disciplined and deliberate practice. Um, and I, I just because it will be more memorable for you, I'm going to give you two illustrations of the end point. Um, there's a story about Wayne Gretzky. Any hockey fans here? Okay. Yeah, a few. Okay. That one time uh, he was trapped behind his opponent's goal. There was a defense. So he's behind the goal. The goal's right here. 
uh, he's got the puck, there's a defender here and a defender here. And most of us, even people who think they understand hockey, would have said, bad situation, try to make a pass and hope it gets to your, you know, your teammate. He flipped the puck over the goal, hit the goalie in the back, and it slid in for a score. <laughs> so the point is he saw something that nobody else in the whole stadium could see. He saw an opportunity because his expertise allowed him to see things that he had already played through, mental rehearsal and other things. Or there's a story about Itzhak Perlman, and many of you may have heard this story. Um, you can find it on the Internet if you want to read the details. It's a very moving story, but he... he had just started a concert one time in Houston, I think it was, and his, one of his strings on his violin broke so loud that everybody in the whole um, auditorium could hear the boing, and everybody went hushed. And he looked at the um, concert master who had stopped and just nodded to start again, and he improvised the entire piece on the remaining three strings. <laughs> And at the end, the audience, you know, applauded, and there was this hush. And then he, he gently said to the audience, he said, sometimes the role of the artist is to find out what you can do with what you have, not what you wanted, or something to that effect. So the point I wanted to make was that getting to the point of expertise means helping the learner start to see creative solutions to scenarios they haven't encountered before. And that only comes about through deliberate practice. Practice is best done, I'll just quickly run through this, in the morning for not more than four hours. And the learner has to be able to really focus on it. So we try to tell our residents, you've got to turn off your pager when you go into the skills lab because it's not the same learning effect if they don't get to do that. Um, and the, the, um, uh, the most wonderful thing, I think, that's come out of Erickson's work, which it goes across di disciplines, is that... Deliberate practice rather than innate ability is what ultimately predicts expert function. That ought to be a great encouragement to all of us because not many of us are born with a lot of innate ability. At least I, I would not say I was. Um, the other thing is when you practice, how you practice is important. Um, so if you're learning a multiple-step task, if you just repeat like step one, step one, step one, step one, and step two, step two, step two, you don't, you're not reconstructing the mental model each time you do it. So randomly having to do the different parts of the task will help you retain it better. So that's another tool you can use in teaching. Um, and that says more of the same thing. Uh, and I'm not going to spend more time on that because we're about out. So the, the, what are the things I would like you to remember from this talk? Educational theory can give us a structure for how to teach better. And it's worth spending a little time on if you've not already encountered this and incorporated into what you do to help you be a better student and also a better teacher. Um, simulation can be a powerful tool, and there are low-cost ways to do it, and it allows practice, which is the key part of the second phase of learning, the integrated phase that we talked about, um, allows you to, to accomplish that task and that phase safely for your patient, safely for you as a learner. And finally, that, that, that practice is more important than anything else in bringing you to the point of expertise. So there's hope for all of us. I put a few references on here. And you're, um, again, if that piece of paper is going around, um, if you put your email on it, I will send you this whole talk. Um, or if you come up and give it, just give me your email address at the end if you didn't see the paper. I will make sure you get it if you're interested. Any other questions or comments? Yes, Edith. Uh, you know, a lot of people, yeah, 
are interested in working in uh, resource poor areas, how can you teach creativity to deal with uh, what you encounter in resource poor areas? Teaching creativity in resource poor areas. Um, teaching, teaching, teaching people who are interested in working in resource poor areas. I mean, you know, you know that you have uh, uh, more resources here, limited resources in overseas when you go and work. Yeah. How do you teach your people who are here going overseas to work in and to be creative? How do you teach them creativity? Right. It's an excellent question. Dr. Agama is, is at the institution I'm at now in Springfield, and he spends a lot of time in Ghana where he's from, and that's his dad sitting next to him there. And they founded a ministry there um, that does a lot of wonderful health care for the people there. Um, I, I think um, one, two things I would say, and then I'd welcome comments from others of you that have spent more time in such settings than I, um, I think developing humility of character is really important. It, that may not sound like it rhymes with creativity, but I think one of the things that keeps you from being creative is to go in feeling like I've got the way to do it and I need to teach others how to do it my way instead of I need to learn to adapt the skills I've been given to the environment I'm going to try to use them in. I think that's an important part of freeing up your mind and your heart to be creative. I think the second thing that's ideal is if you can spend time learning in that setting, um, it's, it's very helpful. PACS, uh, many of you are familiar with PACS, uh, Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. That's their whole training model is train the residents in the type of institutions where they're going to be practicing rather than send them to the West to get training and fall in love with the creature comforts we're seduced by and not want to go back and learn technology and other means of care that they're not going to be able to have or apply in the settings where they're going to go. And I think that's a great way of helping them from the, from the learning all the way up learn how to use those skills. The other thing um, I found is just to net, networking helps a lot. When we go overseas and do the CME conferences for missionary docs in Kenya and Thailand that I've been privileged to be involved with, we'll give state-of-the-art talks on Western medicine and then they will often come and say, oh, you know what, we figured out a way to do that with the stuff we have, and it works really well. And sometimes we go back to our institutions and say, you know, we could save a lot of money. Well, the VAC dressing is a good example. You guys all know about VAC dressings. It's, like, it's, a, it's a whole industry in the United States now. But, you know, it's a sponge and a suction tube. And I know missionaries that have lots of VACs going on. Bob, you could probably comment. But it, so I think that, that, that's part of it, too, to listen to people in those settings. That's a great question. You know, other questions or comments? We're out of time, and I don't want you to miss. I come in, I always, wherever I go, I just walk into their supply rooms, look around, see what they actually have, because then you know what you have to work with. And, you, and lots of times the light will come out and know a case. And you say, oh, yeah, they got this. I could use that instead. That's a great thought. You guys have all thought about this before. One of the passages of Scripture I love is where God calls Moses for a variety of reasons, but the, the part of the story I really love is when Moses is throwing up his objections about what he can't do, and God says, what's that in your hand? And, and then teaches him what he... And, you know, that rod plays a pretty important role in subsequent years. But... I think that's the question God often asks us when we're put into settings we don't know what to do. 
what's that in your hand, and then watch what I can do with it if you'll offer it to me. So I, I think that's where the rubber meets the road on, on some of those issues. Thank you for your attention. If anybody has other questions, I'll be happy to talk with you more.